We should take bets every Tuesday morning on which piece of equipment will fail for Jeff. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of the previous iteration of Hot Takedown, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear. Today is May 21st, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm well. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. How you doing, Sarah? I see one of you is enjoying a breakfast Diet Coke. That's a little gross. Oh, yeah. No, that's me. That was left over in the fridge from, from yesterday evening. Sarah was like, put it in the fridge. Yep. Just, just a morning Diet I, Coke. Well, I'm trying to bring a real Mike Francesa type vibe to the uh, studio today. Wow. I drink morning Diet Cokes, too. It's the way to, it's the way to go. Who needs coffee? When, when you don't Diet have coffee you know, at, yep. at your disposal or are, in my case, too lazy to spend the 35 seconds making it um, <laughs> in, the, in the break room. Diet Coke. Got to get caffeine in you somehow. This is a weird this ad for Diet Coke. Brought to you by Diet Coke. <laughs> no, it's brought, wow. to you, it's brought to you by great Pepsi. Great for breakfast. <laughs> wow. Tastes great with cereal. Um, you guys, this was such a wacky weekend for weird sports stuff. It was so much fun. Also, I think now our podcast is just going to become a horse racing podcast. That's my new... <laughs> I think that should be our shtick. <laughs> we are trying to set a new record for most consecutive episodes talking about horse racing. No, I think now from like, now on. Like this shatters any previous hot takedown records. It's, right. it's triple crown season. Sure. <laughs> but we'll keep going. We'll do the Travers. We'll do the Breeders' Cup. We'll You've brought up the, the Travers. Travers has been mentioned multiple times also. <laughs> well, I think amazing. I brought up the Haskell, actually. Let's just see, get our uh, you know second-tier <laughs> sure. premier grade one stakes races straight. We'll fact-check to see that you brought up both. We can get into the yearling auctions when that happens. Okay, well, so at the Preakness <laughs> over the weekend... Which was really wait. There was a pregnant. No, yeah, right. I know. (laughs) But most people probably uh, felt that way because there's no uh, no triple crown, you know, on the line. Right. No. No contender. Only reason I would care about that middle race is to see if the winner of the first race wins the second race. But in this case, the winner of the first race didn't even win the first race. See, this is usually the Belmont Stakes' problem that their popularity and their numbers, their gate depends on. You know, if a horse wins the first two races, the Preakness normally doesn't have to deal with this. Right, because it always will, well, most years, get the the Kentucky winner. But they did get a very special horse this year (laughs) named Bodie Express, who was like, you know what, guys? I've had enough of this whole person riding me thing. I'm going to try this race without that. Yeah, who needs it? Yeah, and actually, it makes more sense, right? You got an extra run free. He, he got an extra lap in on the field at the end also. Yeah. So he was the winner, I think, in, in terms of enjoyment. Yeah, no, he had, the best, he had the best time of all anyone involved, all the horses, all the spectators. He was living his best life out there. I will say, and I mentioned this in our little Slack channel, little. is that I because, as you know, we've well established each week that I'm a degenerate and have been to the track many times for non-stakes races, you know, just the sort of run-of-the-mill weekday allowance races. I have seen this happen before, and I actually saw it once happen where the horse without a jockey won the race. That doesn't but is that count. is that acceptable? Yeah, it's not allowed. It does not count. It does not count. Um, the... 
it kind of makes sense because you're if you're not if you don't have the weight of the jockey, even though those guys you know don't weigh very much, um, they they should run a lot faster without the jockey. So that does make sense, even though there's no one you know telling them when to go and that kind of thing. Um, and this was probably a much shorter race. But the interesting thing I remember is the guy who does the call. It was at Belmont Park. It was the guy who does the call live. He was calling it and just completely ignoring the jockeyless horse. <laughs> just like that, talking about this, you know, two horses dueling for first and second and ignoring the fact that there was another <laughs> horse just running ahead of them, um, which I thought was pretty cool. I like that. You, um, you choose your own reality. It's you know? as though the, the other horse didn't exist. But I think this also just exposes that our jockeys, jockeys are kind of a racket. Like it's, it's being sort of, um, you know, imposed to keep the jockeys in business. But, uh, like you just said, Jeff, the horses would run faster without them. Do they really need jockeys? Why not just have the horses just run free? Well, they, they don't have jockeys at the dog track. Right. Yeah. I was going to say greyhounds don't have jockeys. But if they did, that would be interesting. (laughs) Uh, Uh, you didn't have any money on this. I didn't. I actually didn't even watch it. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I watched the replay and uh, enjoyed it. And I, I, it was, I was happy that War of the Will, what was his name? War of the, something like War that? Of one? Um, yeah. <laughs> War of something? War of the because he Because he was the one who really got cut off um, in in the Kentucky Derby. So oh, right. Very fitting. Um, not the horse that actually won. I'm doing air quotes, the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> Uh, air quotes on uh, an audio format. I yeah, like it. <laughs> yeah. Great feature. <laughs> the other uh, bit of weirdness this weekend was the PGA Championship, which we thought was just going to coast to a Brooks Kepka win. And then Sunday he did his best not to win. But then Dustin Johnson... Um, I guess really wanted Kepka to get his fourth major. Yeah, it was a, a, a Jeff. You said in in our little slack that it was a clutch counter choke by Dustin yeah. Johnson to offset the choke <laughs> he by saw Brooks. His choke and he raised him another choke. I think the fact of the matter was it was just really windy and horrible conditions out there. I mean, I think it was not surprising that actually on hindsight that both guys were you know unable to make par in the last few holes because it seemed like the conditions got particularly worse for those last few groups that were still on on the course it had gotten really really windy they were having trouble doing yeah doing just about anything basic golf things. <laughs> doing basic golf <laughs> yeah uh, but now we live in a world where brooks kepka has won four majors and uh only three non-majors including only two of those on the pga like regular normal pga tour um, so we had a story, uh, over the weekend, um, by Josh Planos about how that's by far the highest share, uh, of total wins that came in majors, uh, for any player since 2000, that 57% for Brooks Kepka, um, uh, that, that come in majors. But I don't know what, what do we make of this? I, I wanted to ask you guys that because does it suggest that Brooks Kepka is just clutch? I mean, that's what we heard throughout the whole, um, coverage over the weekend was this guy's just you know he's he, he he's like a machine out there but a machine that only really runs during major weekends and or or does he just not take the other uh tournaments seriously or is my favorite explanation is it just totally random and that if enough golfers play enough tournaments eventually you will get one guy that wins a crazy amount in majors and then we'll come up with the narrative that he's clutch afterwards well i mean i think it's a couple of things it's definitely Possibly, definitely, possibly, a factor of maybe <laughs> his effort on the sort of you know week to week 
PGA events is not as, when I say effort, I mean preparation and all that is not the same as it is for majors, which to some extent is probably true for all golfers. But the other thing I think going on here is that, and, and Brooks alluded to this, um, in one of his interviews is that these major events, the courses become so difficult. You know, you look at what they did at the U.S. Opens and then you look at Beth Page Black, which has hosted U.S. Opens and basically was like a U.S. Open light in terms of the distance and the, and the way they grow out the rough. And it becomes almost impossible for some of these guys in the field who are not these huge hitters to win. So I think he's particularly good at, at these this type of course design, this type of setup. I mean, you look at his numbers, he only hit uh, 32 of 56 fairways, which was tied for 44th, but he was number one in greens on regulation, which means he's getting it on the green, hitting it in that awful rough, and still managing to get it on the green. And I'll tell you, most guys were not able to do that. You know, they went into that, uh, you know, grass that was like up to their, you know, knees practically, and they're not going to get on the green in two, yet he can do that because of, you know, A, his talent, and B, how big and strong he is. So I, I do think there is something about the way these events are, are set up that are favors Brooks. Yeah, it seemed like it was more random to me just because, uh, like you said, all all the other golfers are probably, you know, more prepared for the majors. They're the majors. That's the whole point, right? So it doesn't, even if you took a little time off during the regular season, that everyone is doing roughly that. But that's an interesting point about the, the difficulty of the course because, of course, Beth Page is... Uh, you know, famously difficult. I have been to Bethpage and walked up to the sign that says for skilled golfers only. And then I walked away and went to one of the easy courses. <laughs> yeah, I you took a picture. He- you heated the, I did. The sign. I was like, you know what? I, I feel like this is speaking to me. <laughs> oh, Oh, skilled golfers. Okay, I'm sorry. I missed yeah, yeah. that. I was confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On today's show, we'll look ahead to the Women's World Cup with soccer writer Caitlin Murray, and we'll dig into the American national team's ongoing labor dispute. And we'll also take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We're just a little more than two weeks away from the Women's World Cup. France, the host country, will play the inaugural game of the tournament against South Korea on June 7th. Joining us today is journalist and author Caitlin Murray, whose book, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer, is available now with Abrams Books. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, how are you? Great. It's so nice to have you with us. We're thrilled to talk about soccer with you. Yeah, I love talking about soccer. It's my favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) So the American women will play the World Cup under the shadow of a labor dispute, one of many facing professional women's sports, including basketball and hockey. In March, 28 players sued the U.S. Soccer Federation in federal court. The players accused the organization of gender-based employment discrimination with the wage disparities between the men's and women's teams among the biggest concerns. Plaintiff and national team defender Becky Sauerbrunn released this statement. The bottom line is simple. It is wrong for us to be paid and valued less for our work because of our gender. Every member of this team works incredibly hard to achieve the success that we have had for the USSF. We are standing up now so that our efforts and those of future USWNT players will be fairly recognized. Caitlin, what are the main arguments of the players? Well, there are compensation issues, and then there are non-compensation issues. I think the easiest ones to understand are the non-compensation issues, things like the fact that 
the women played 21% of their matches in the period of time the lawsuit looks at on artificial turf, whereas the men almost never play on artificial turf. They played once on artificial turf in the last like 20 years, I think it is. Men being given charter flights for their games and the women not being given charter flights. So those are sort of the simple issues. The more complicated issue is compensation because the women and the men are paid via different salary structures, different bonus structures, and they each negotiated for those in their CBA. But the bottom line is that the men are paid more. More compensation overall is available for the men and the women want equal pay. What that looks like is a little more complicated, but it's clear that they feel they should be compensated better. There is a precedent for a case in California where a women's basketball coach was paid less than a men's basketball coach, and they said that the men's basketball coach had to do a lot more promotion and work. And I just think that's an interesting comparison because the gender roles are reversed here, and the women actually do more work. They play more games. So if that is precedent, it could be used. And how, how big of a gap is the difference between sort of the average uh, women's player and the average men's player on the national teams? Well, according to the lawsuit, it says that female players could earn a maximum of around $100,000 or an average of $5,000 per game, whereas the men could earn around $260,000 or an average of $13,000 per game. A big reason for that difference is the bonuses that the men get. So the men can earn up to almost $18,000 if they win a game, depending on the opponent. The women in their current CBA can get up to $8,500. Before that, it was even lower. It was around $1,500 or something. So the bonuses end up creating a huge disparity, but the women are paid salaries. The men are not paid salaries. The men are actually paid by making game day rosters, by making these bonuses. So Again, it is a complicated thing, but what the women are arguing is that the bottom line is that more compensation overall is being made available to the men's team, and the women could not negotiate for anything better in their CBAs, and that is their issue. Yes, the CBA is negotiated, but U.S. soccer would not agree to anything better or closer to equal. And and the women's team has been so much more successful on the field than the men's team has. I mean, they've won three of the seven World Cups that have ever been played on the women's side, four Olympic golds. Uh, by contrast, the best the men have ever done was World Cup third place in 1930. They didn't even qualify for a 40-year period between 1950 and 1990. And then they also missed it in 2018. So... I guess my question is, how much of a role does the contrasting levels of success between the men's and the women's teams have in this lawsuit? Like you mentioned, bonuses based on performance. If anyone is deserving of those, it's the women. Well, I think the argument is that the U.S. women's national team wins. They are winners. They bring glory and interest and all those things to U.S. soccer. They, you know, when they won the World Cup in 2015, overnight, the team just surged in popularity. And they actually make the point in their lawsuit that after the team won, uh, U.S. soccer had projected a loss of around $400,000 for that fiscal year. After the women won, it turned into a $17 million profit for the Federation. Oh, wow. Whoa. 
But part of the argument as well is that the women have had to win to earn what they have from U.S. soccer and get what they have from U.S. soccer. And I think the argument is that the men are being paid more even though they lose. So winning shouldn't shouldn't actually matter. Like, the women shouldn't have to have this pressure to win just to be paid what they are. So, I mean, that that is part of it. So I think the, the soccer federation would say, well, more people watch the men than watch the women. Is that a good argument? Is that an, I mean, is there a way that the players are going to counter that argument? Yes. The women on average do not get as large crowds for their games. They Last year, they got about 70% on average than the men got. However, the women played six more games than the men. So overall, they drew more fans. So from one standpoint, you look at that and say, that's actually not equal work. The women are actually working more. They're playing more games. They're training more. They're doing more media. They have more duties as national team members. And as a result, overall, they have brought in more fans. They have brought in more revenue. In fact, over the last three years, women's national team events have brought in more revenue than men's national team events. Part of that is that they just play more games and it's more work. But I think from U.S. soccer's perspective... The men's team does have higher drawing power. Now, I I think that's indisputable that the men have the potential to draw more fans than the women because, um, you know, the men are playing teams like Mexico that has a huge fan base. The U.S. or uh, the Mexican men's team has a huge following in the United States. The men's team can play against Brazil and Neymar can be there. He's a global superstar. But you I don't think it's a legal argument, but it's certainly a public relations argument that you look at the attendance for women's national team games, and it's pretty consistent. They draw about the same level of fans. Everyone there is a U.S. fan. With the men's national team, the crowds they draw are kind of dependent on the opponent because people are there to watch the other team. They're not there to watch the U.S. men. So from a legal perspective, that isn't helpful. But I think from a public relations perspective, the women will say, hey, everyone's going to our games to see us. They're not going to the men's games to see them. And how much of that is is tied up in like TV revenue and things like that? I know that viewership on television, especially these huge events like the World Cup, sort of plays into some of the revenue that uh, each team makes. But also, to your point, people are watching to see the other teams, uh, even on television, more than they're they're sort of making appointment viewing to watch the men's team, right? Yeah, I think... TV revenue and TV ratings are sort of a red herring in this because, yes, the most watched soccer game in the history of the U.S. was the women's national team at the World Cup in 2015. That revenue doesn't go to U.S. soccer or the women. It goes to FIFA, who sells those rights. And then for friendly games, U.S. soccer bundles the rights of the U.S. men's and women's national teams. So there's actually no way to see which team is more valuable when negotiating those broadcast rights because they're bundled together. So TV ratings are something that people talk about, but in terms of trying to figure out who brings in more revenue, who brings in more value to the federation, just because of the way it works, there's not actually a way to do that. The American women have boycotted tournaments in the past over labor issues, but the the Women's World Cup is not in any danger of that. The U.S. will kick off its title defense against Thailand on June 11th. The two teams are in Group F, along with Sweden and Chile. Do any of these teams pose a threat to the Americans, Caitlin? 
Sweden definitely poses a threat. As anyone who watched the 2016 Olympics will remember, Sweden was the team that knocked the U.S. out in the quarterfinal. And the U.S. has never not made third place in a major tournament. So when Sweden knocked them out in the quarterfinal in 2016, that was a huge deal. So it's going to be interesting now that the U.S. has to face them again in the very next major tournament. It will come down to the U.S. versus Sweden, essentially. No offense to Thailand or Chile. The U.S. and Sweden play each other all the time, too. This is the fifth consecutive World Cup that they've been in the same group, which is sort of amazing when you think about yeah, how does that? How does that work out <laughs> that way? Yeah, I actually, uh, I watched the draw. Uh, Kelly O'Hara, a defender on the national team, we were at MLS Cup. Uh, there was an event. She was there watching the draw with some reporters, and she kind of joked, it's going to be Sweden uh, when the ball was in the container. And, you know, of course, it was Sweden. Yeah, they face each other constantly, and it, it's it's fitting. This is going to decide who wins the group. And the way the draw went, depending on who wins the group, the U.S. might have to face either France or Germany in the quarterfinal. That is an incredibly difficult quarterfinal matchup. And after losing in the quarterfinal in 2016, I think they're worried about that. I mean, now suddenly being knocked out in quarterfinals on the table for the U.S., when in the past that was just inconceivable. And is that more of a statement on the the rest of the world kind of catching up to the U.S. team or um, sort of this golden generation of the past uh, few World Cup cycles sort of getting older uh, and, and maybe having to sort of phase in uh, a bunch of new players? No, I think it has more to do with women's soccer as a whole is just getting better all the time. The 2019 Women's World Cup is going to be the most competitive World Cup there ever was. And the next World Cup will probably, again, be the most competitive one. The world is just getting better. And I actually think this U.S. team, player for player, when they're clicking, when they're playing well, it's as good as any team that the U.S. has ever had in its history. Their problem is that the rest of the world is just a lot better, too. Which is probably good in the long run, right? We want more and more countries to embrace women's soccer and and put out these good teams that are then a threat to our dominance. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think the U.S. players even say that. They want it to be more competitive. They want to see other federations putting money into their women's programs. It's not really that interesting if it's just sort of the U.S. and a few other teams that are being supported by their federations. I mean, everyone wants to see that other countries around the world are going to embrace women's soccer. So who are some of the players that you're most excited to watch on the U.S. team uh, this time around? I mean, everyone knows about Carly Lloyd or Alex Morgan. These are the big stars of the team. One player I'm really looking at is Rose Lavelle. This is going to be her first major tournament. And she's a player that brings something different to the U.S. team. She's more of a playmaker. She's creative. She has a lot of flair. And she has good vision on the field and can sort of break lines with her passes and set her teammates up for goals. So I think she's going to be a really interesting young player to watch who potentially could have a really big future with this team. For 11 of the 23 Americans, this is their first World Cup roster. Um, You mentioned Carly Lloyd. This is her fourth. (laughs) Who is the biggest surprise to make this the team this year? Ooh, I think actually Morgan Bryan, I think people who follow the team were pretty shocked. She did play in 2015 and she actually played a huge 
role. Um, in 2015, one of the players got yellow card suspension, and Morgan Bryan, it was her first World Cup, she was thrown into that role and did a really great job. And she was actually the reason that Carly Lloyd was able to play so well. She sort of freed Carly Lloyd up to be this uh, attacking presence. So you would think that, of course, she would make the 2019 roster. But since that tournament, she's actually been in really bad form. She struggled a lot with injuries. She hasn't been in the team as much. So it was surprising to see her make the team. But Jill Ellis, clearly the coach, is leaning on experience. And she wanted players who've been to a World Cup before. So in that in that vein, were you surprised that Allie Krieger made the team? Or were you expecting her to, given Jill Ellis's focus on experience? Well, it's definitely... It was definitely shocking when Allie Krieger made the team. I expected it because she made the final roster before the World Cup roster was announced. And why would you call her in at that point if you weren't even considering it? So once that happened, I expected her to be on the roster, but it was still very shocking because, like you said, she's she was out of the team for two years. It seemed like Jill Ellis had clearly moved on and sort of just dismissed the idea that Allie Krieger could be part of the team. So to see her back in was very surprising. I don't know how much of a role she'll play in the World Cup, but she definitely has experience. Um, she's definitely a good locker room player. Everyone really likes her. I can see why she made the team. Definitely surprising, though. So do you have any uh, fun predictions for the World Cup that, that you're kind of uh, penciling in ahead of time in terms of like maybe surprise teams or, or even where do you think the, the U.S. will end up? Well, my prediction is I think this is a World Cup that is ripe for a first-time winner. Ooh. So I am looking at teams like Australia, a young, exciting team to watch. This could be a big breakout tournament for them. England, another team that I think has been on the rise and now are in a position to finally, you know, contend for a title. So my prediction is I think it's going to be a first time winner. I think we're going to move beyond the usual suspects. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to your earlier point about just, you know, showing the the level to which the rest of the world has kind of risen and the sport itself has risen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there used to be a time when there were maybe like five teams in the conversation that could, that could win a World Cup. It's a much larger field now of teams that could potentially do it. Let's leave it there. Thank you, Caitlin, for joining us today. Your book is called The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. And where can people find it? It's on Amazon. It's in just about every Barnes & Noble across the country. But if you want all the retailer links, you can just go to uswntbook.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before we move on, let's have a word from one of this week's sponsors, LinkedIn Jobs. And Neil, I think you should maybe read this one. Yeah, and, and it will become apparent by the end of the ad copy, which I'm totally not reading off a page and completely uh, speaking from the heart. Hiring isn't as easy as putting an ad in the paper or posting on a job board. With more qualified candidates than ever, you need something that helps you find the right people for your business. And LinkedIn Jobs does just that. With more than 500 million active members, people come to LinkedIn every day to make connections, grow their careers, and discover new job opportunities. And 90% of LinkedIn users are open to new opportunities, but not actively scanning job boards. This means LinkedIn Jobs gives you access to an entirely different demographic than anywhere else. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. 
Things like collaboration, work ethic, and adaptability are all taken into consideration, so LinkedIn Jobs can help you find someone who's not only qualified, but also matches with your company's culture. LinkedIn Jobs gets your job in front of the most relevant, qualified candidates, so you can focus on making a hire that you're excited about. So post a job today at linkedin.com slash pain, my name, P-A-I-N-E, to get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash pain, P-A-I-N-E. Terms and conditions do apply. Let's have a word from this week's other sponsor, ExxonMobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, but some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Jeff, take it away. So mine uh, was prompted by Ioannis Cespedes. Um, if you saw the news, I'm sure Neil saw the news and has some um, angry thoughts as a as a Met fan. No, nothing uh, consumable on on air. It's a family podcast. Yeah, he injured himself quite severely on a freak injury on his ranch. We don't really have the details of that. I don't know if we're going to get them. The Mets GM made it very clear that he was not riding a horse. Okay. Which he is known to do. Which he is known to do, among other things. I think that probably has to do with a contract issue, possibly, where he's not allowed to ride horses um, during the regular season when he's rehabbing from injury, which would make sense. That prompted me, although this is, you know, strange, it is certainly not strange for baseball. If you look at the long history of weird sports injuries by far and i spent a long time looking at weird sports injuries in the last day or so by far baseball has the most baseball is the absolute tops at strange injuries and and i'll be honest i don't believe half of these injuries they just are too crazy i'm a normal human and most of these take place in everyday life and i just don't think these kind of things happen so Let's put a little skepticism on some of it without accusing anything. And there's so many crazy baseball injuries that I decided to create a lineup of a starting a starting baseball team, every position of the weird injury all-stars. Um, so I'm just going to go through it. Okay, so our starting rotation is going to be Steve Sparks of the Brewers. Famously tried to rip a phone book in half and dislocated his <laughs> shoulder, which is just great. That just speaks for itself. I'm going to move on. There were so many pitchers. Honestly, I had to make some really tough choices here. Uh, next up in our rotation will be Francisco Liriano, who this is actually kind of sad because I think he lost a, a, a decent amount of uh, money for this. But he broke his arm when he slammed it against a door trying to startle his kids on Christmas Day, which... I, it's not Halloween, <laughs> but he was, That's... I don't know, I don't know why you would scare yeah, your why kids do on you Christmas. S- yeah, why are you uh, scaring your kids on Christmas? They're supposed to be happy. Um, but, okay, uh, Trevor Bauer, this is a famous one. Uh, and we do have a lot of sort of cutting of hands, and I, I tried to steer away from those, but the fact that he cut his hand during the playoffs when he was uh, uh, repairing a drone is just 
you got to make the team. He's on the team. And lastly in the rotation, and this is possibly my favorite, Nolan Ryan, who was bitten by a coyote. Ryan found two coyote pups. He decided to take them home. Of course. I don't remember that. That's what you do when you find coyote pups. And one of them bit him in the hand. Wait, where's Madison Bumgarner? This, washing his this, no that was the I, riding i'm sorry the, the i, I don't make yeah. decisions here you know I, I could i could feel two teams you know but, but bitten by a coyote pup you know that's better than dirt bike to me look uh and pitchers in particular maybe because they're a little more eccentric you know tom glavin you know injured himself vomiting because of food poisoning you know he didn't make the team so brian anderson this guy almost made it he burned his face with an iron um, because he held it to his face to see if it was on. All right, we'll just keep going around. Uh, the catcher will be Jonathan LaCroix. This one makes no sense. He injured his hand when he was trying to retrieve a lost sock and under his bed, and a, his wife moved a piece of luggage, and it fell onto his hand. I just don't understand what is happening there. First of all, when I lose a sock, you know, I don't spend a lot of time looking for that, that sock. That doesn't surprise me. And then I don't know where the luggage and the wife comes in. That Red one flags. to me <laughs> is dubious. Red flags on that one. First base, Angels first baseman Ian Stewart got headbutted by his daughter, his four-year-old daughter. Um, as someone with small kids, I can relate to this. I have been headbutted accidentally. Uh, to quote Stuart at the time, she was lying in bed on her stomach watching TV. When I went to put her to bed, I kind of lunged at her. Okay, that I'm going to stop him right there. That sounds a little weird. I kind of lunged at her. Um, but I sort of know, you know, you kind of goof around. I, and then he goes, I don't know if it scared her or what, but she sat up and our heads came together and my nose uh, got hit by the back of her head. Okay. You'll see there's a theme along with Liriano. There's a lot of sort of just mishaps with the family. Second base, one of my favorites all time, Clint Barnes. He got injured carrying deer meat into his home down the stairs. Now, this was one that was a little controversial because he had got the deer meat from Todd Helton. And then there was there was some theories that maybe the deer meat incident... Uh, I'm also curious how big deer meat is. I guess if you shoot a whole deer, it's a lot of meat. It's like a a side, but I don't know. I'm not a hunter. There was some concern that maybe they were on an ATV and that would be a contract violation. And then this deer meat story came. But again, if you're going to lie, then why would you make up something this odd? So I'm giving Clint the benefit of the doubt. Third base, Brandon Inge. This is another mishap with a three or four year old. He aggravated an injury fluffing a pillow for his daughter wait what and How? yeah yeah that, that <laughs> speaks for itself uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say there quote uh tigers manager jim leland at the time that's a first and i think he's right shortstop shortstop was tough there was not a lot of great shortstops i wanted to put eric ibar in here who um, choked on a chicken bone, and it was pretty severe. He had to be sedated. But I don't, I, I sort of sympathize with Eric there because I'm not a big chicken bone guy. <laughs> you don't just eat a lot of chicken bones? <laughs> I, You know, Neil would know when we get... Um, Popeye's. Popeye's chicken, which we've been known to do. 
I always go with the nuggets or the boneless because I'm not into the bones. They kind of, you know, I'm worried about an Eric Ibar situation happening. And so he didn't make the list, but Johan Camargo, who's on the Braves, this one there's video of, and it's funny that he just is running out of the field before the first pitch and just falls on his face <laughs> and injures himself. And I encourage you all to watch that video. I hate to laugh at injuries, but that one is just comic gold. Let's go to the outfield. A lot of options in the outfield. Um, I got to put Ricky Henderson in there who fell asleep with an ice pack on his, I think it was his ankle or his knee and got frostbite. I mean, that's amazing. On the other side, that's cold. Marty Cordova oh, no. fell asleep on a tanning bed. <laughs> I remember this happening. And sunburned his face. <laughs> What's amazing to me is that he went to like a place to get... First of all, why do you need to go to a tanning salon when you're a baseball you're player? Outdoors, you're outdoors literally in all the sun constantly all summer. So I don't really get that. But also, you, presumably, you would think someone who worked there would wake him up. But the doctor said he had to miss a day game because he was not allowed to go back into the, the sun. Rounding out the outfield, the, one of the most famous and my favorite was Glen Allen Hill. The great Glen Allen Hill was having a nightmare about spiders, <laughs> woke up from the nightmare, and then fell through a glass coffee table. I mean, just beyond words. To quote Glenn Allen, I'm uneasy with spiders, but I don't think it's spiders that caused that nightmare. It might have been diet. It might have been stress. More of a sleeping disorder. Spiders just happened to be what I dreamt about that night. It could have been about a car that kept running over me. It could have been about, <laughs> you know, caterpillars. Okay. What? I mean, <laughs> Glenn. There's so much to unpack oh there. First of all, yeah. <laughs> he's really, yeah, he doesn't want to throw the spiders under the bus. Do you think he, he has like a sleep journal where he writes his dreams? He every should. Morning? I mean, I mean clearly. he should. Yeah. It's clearly based this on guy's having dreams about caterpillars and cars that keep running over him. And of course, I forgot to mention the closer, Joel Zumaya. Ah, uh, yes. This is Neil's favorite. It's in there for you. There, there was a lot of relief pitcher options, too. But um, he, of course, got injured, I think, during the playoffs. The it was ALCS. during the 2006 ALCS. He played too much Guitar Hero. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and Were it, you a Guitar Hero guy, Neil? Uh, yeah, I used to play uh, quite a bit. I don't think I ever... Yeah, well, you have to have the peripheral, and so when we moved, my wife made me uh, throw out the um, the the f- fake guitar that you had to sort of have in order to play. I mean, I guess you could play it using the buttons on the controller, but that would be extremely difficult and disorienting. Um, so I had to throw it out. So I'm no longer a Guitar Hero player, and I assume Joel Zumaya, uh, in addition to no longer being a Major League Baseball player, he is uh, maybe now he just has time to right. to, to pursue his his dream, right? <laughs> professional guitar hero player it's funny too because my wife threw out my fake guitar for guitar hero I, i'm pretty sure she rightly didn't even ask me I'm, she just I'm well this is both garbage. of your wives here no that's the, i mean <laughs> rightly so it's the right, yeah it was the right move i didn't put up a fight on that one i was like yes you can throw away that child's toy <laughs> i was not gonna go to uh go to bat to keep a flimsy plastic uh you know thing that uh, for a game that i probably played last in two probably last the uh, played it the same season that Joel Zamaya injured himself. Okay. Well, I think that will do it for this week's show. 
Uh, thank you guys for joining me. And thank you, listeners. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe, review, and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Thanks again to Caitlin Murray for joining us. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.